Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. This is the third of a series of interviews we recorded at the Words on the Waves Writers Festival. We spoke with Ashley Collagian Blunt, author of the psychological thriller Dark Mode. Uh, We spoke to Ashley about the dark web, her creative process, and the differences between Australia and her home country of Canada. I love this chat. I actually lived and studied in Canada for six months when I was at uni. So it was, I don't know, very nostalgic for me to talk to her. She sort of had the opposite view that I had having traveled here. She's actually written a book all about her experience of coming to Australia as a foreigner, as a Canadian called How to Be Australian. And reading little extracts from that took me all the way back to uni when I was writing these emails home about what it was like to be in Canada as an Australian. But what I found particularly interesting talking to Ashley was really about dark mode, which I have recently listened to as an audiobook. And it was a fabulous book and I have to thoroughly recommend it to anyone who's like me, like all women who just listen to true crime religiously would love this book seriously. And talking to her about it was really interesting. But I also really like talking to her about her experience as an author because she suffers from chronic illness. And so just hearing what it's like to sort of write with that challenge and to to get through that and to actually achieve great success despite her difficulties. Yeah, so thanks, Ashley, for taking the time to chat with us. And here's the interview. So we're here with Ashley Collagian Blunt, and it's lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Thank you so much. Um, I have to tell you that I've just lost my audiobook virginity to Dark Mode, your book. (laughs) Wow, that's a real honor. Thank you. Um, It fantastically read um, by Bianca Bradley. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. great voice, very soothing, considering the subject matter is not particularly soothing. Um, But you're not here for that books today, are you? So you're here for How to Be an Australian, is that yes, correct? Yes, yes. So, yes. so my, my first uh, full-length work was a memoir on How to Be Australian. And do you feel like you've mastered the art yet? Uh, I do feel fairly comfortable with it, especially because the book came about because for a long time I didn't feel comfortable with it. So the process of writing the book and then talking about the book has really helped me feel like, oh, no, I've earned this. You've earned it. Now, I know you've said elsewhere that um, you had the false impression that Australia was just like a hot Canada. Mm -hmm. But as an Australian having travelled to Canada, I definitely feel like it's a cold Australia. So (laughs) how long were you in Canada? Six months. Okay. So the first year I was here, it was like, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. This is, you know, not unexpected. But then the longer I stayed, the more I realized that the differences are subtle, but they all add up. Oh, okay. For example, I was writing a thesis Mm -hmm. and uh, my supervisor would say things to me and I would understand them one way. But then I realized over time that, no, 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 she was saying something completely different and I had just misinterpreted everything. Do you have any examples that spring to mind or... Well, for example, like she would say, oh, like maybe you should look at this person and this person, these, these academics for the thesis. And what I didn't realize was when she said, maybe you should, she meant you have to include these. <laughs> but that's just academics in general, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know that that's particularly Australian. But I have to say, though, I had an experience probably that you might find was similar to your own in that when I went to Canada, all of the people I met were Australian. So I guess that was like yeah. a situation of like, I'm not actually meeting any Canadian people. So no wonder I feel like it's pretty Australian here. I went as a student. So we we're all Aussies there or 75% of the student, um, international students were Aussies. Oh, wow. So I believe I read in an extract from how to be Australian that 
when you came here, you were actually meeting a lot of foreigners where you were going. So I guess you were a tourist at times. And so you're going to tourist areas. And Well, and also I did a master's degree and a lot of Aussies, especially at that time, went straight from honors into PhD. They, right. There's no master's requirement. Okay. So us foreigners who like needed a master's in our system, we came here and paid exorbitant student fees to do a a master's degree. So I think there were only two Aussies in in the whole program. Yeah, right. Okay. And so was it later when you started to work that you found you met more Aussies? Definitely. And then I got involved in some like local things. Like for example, I was involved in a public speaking club and that was mostly like almost everyone was Australian born. And so that, that really helped me start to realize where you know, you're getting up and talking and you're listening to other people talk about their life experiences. And that's when some more of those subtle differences started to come out. Yeah, right. Well, okay. So if we flip it, could you give us some tips on how to be Canadian? (laughs) So how do we undo some of the differences to be more like you? (laughs) Well, one thing that really still to this day trips me up is that generally when Canadians tell a joke, we're, we're much more influenced by Americans, we will, you know, smile or laugh or like indicate that we are joking. <laughs> Whereas Aussies have this incredibly dry humor, then they'll deliver these lines and I'll still be like, wait, are you serious? <laughs> so that's that's one thing for sure. I think the intention though is to completely unsettle you when they do that for their own amusement. See, so. see that, yeah, Canadians would never do that. We're far too polite to go around and You're trying people. to amuse other people, yes, exactly. whereas we're trying to amuse ourselves. Okay, got it. Right, gotcha. That's actually the best explanation of that I've ever heard. Thank you, Amanda. See, I'm still learning. Hey, well, I mean, you taught me that just now, so we're learning together. Um, but I'm I'm actually am particularly interested in dark mode, having just read it, um, or have it read to me as a bedtime story. Yeah. Um, what gave you the idea for? Oh, so dark mode is a psychological thriller with a dark web plot, and it yeah, also involves particularly one true crime from the United States, the Black Dahlia murder, uh, which was the murder of Elizabeth Short in Los Angeles in 1947, which is like one of the most infamous unsolved cases uh, in true crime history. And so I was interested in pulling these different aspects of crime and particularly violence against women together. But really the idea for the book came from one particular twist. Okay. There's a, there you'll, I won't give anything away, but there's a moment where the main character, Reagan, knocks on a door and someone answers, and it's not the person she's expecting to answer. Okay. And of course, I when I envisioned this, I knew exactly what was happening, but she doesn't know what's happening. And the reader at that moment doesn't know what's happening. And I was like, oh, I've never seen that particular thing done. And I wonder, like, what would I need? What plot would I need to build out from yeah. that? to make that twist work. So that was really the starting point. That's amazing, starting with the twist, because I know a lot of people who write and then just they want to build a twist in Mm. and it becomes so difficult because obviously you've got to have all these little clues along the way if you want to have a bit of a twist um, that's going to be satisfying. So to start with the twist is interesting and I think it's probably a great place to start if you're writing a psychological thriller because that's what, you know, that's the payoff for readers. That's that's what people want. Exactly. They want to be surprised, yeah. Now Ed's here too. Like I haven't even let him get a word in edgewise, but. Um, the book does have some real, um, like it talks about the male rights activists, yeah. um, which I find really fascinating. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, do you get much feedback from male readers on this book? Not yet. And that was actually one of the only concerns I had when I put it out was would it attract attention from some of these groups that are mm. quite, you know, virulent and aggressive online? And there's one particular real man who committed a horrendous crime and then put out a manifesto and killed himself. 
And his name was originally in the book because I wanted to tie everything that happened around him. Mm. I wanted to tie it into what I was writing about. But a friend of mine who worked at the New York Times said, you know what? I wouldn't include his name because if people find it online. You're a target. Exactly. Exactly. So effectively, I've self-censored because I am afraid. Yeah. But luckily so far, like... I've mostly had really, really lovely feedback from readers. I have one two two star review on Goodreads, which is to me is really funny that this guy gave me two stars. But he he said like terrible book written by someone who clearly hates men. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. I didn't find it to be anti-men at all, although there are a few really dastardly men in the story. I, I definitely found it to be anti, you know, male rights activists, like these extreme right men um it's certainly anti those groups um which i guess does sort of put you out as the enemy in a way uh, which is a bit (laughs) scary but it's really not about that is it like it's about this one person's story um and even she isn't especially anti-men you know uh, despite what has happened to her and what happens to her in the book so And she's, she, well, she, she's not anti-men particularly because the things that happened to her early in life, she developed trust issues and those came from both things that both men and women did. That's right. And, and it seems to be that she has trust issues just with people. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. She's much more comfortable with plants. She runs a garden center and hence the, the flowers on, on the cover are representative of some of the things that she grows. And I love that. I mean, I'm a big plant fan. Like we're about the same age and it's, it's, I mean, we've got true crime, we've got plant porn in there, we've got a bit of romance, you know, we've got certainly got drama. It's just such a fabulous combination, I think, for women our age, um, bringing all the things that we love into one place. I'm not sure you're the target demographic, Ed, but I actually think you'd enjoy it. I would say, and I'm not sucking up because you're here, (laughs) it's very well written and I really enjoyed listening to it and I think you'd enjoy it. I'll give it a try. Um, It does have some satisfying twists in there too. So So the dark web is an interesting place. Um, I'm interested to know what kind of research you did and and are you now on some sort of list? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure all crime writers have to be on some kind of list because like we're literally Googling things like how to build a bomb. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But the dark web, I got interested in it because I lost my driver's license like a block from my house, fell out of my pocket. And the next day, my author website, the back end of it was just flooded with visits from Russia and China and Ukraine. So I'm sure my driver's license was put onto the dark web and people were coming to see what other information they could find about me. When I started reading up on like what was happening with that, I was like, oh, like I don't really know very much about the dark web. And now I'm really curious about how all this works. And so then I did a workshop with a, a dark web journalist was the best use of Zoom that has ever, <laughs> ever occurred in the history of Zoom, which she just like you know, shared her screen and took us on a two-hour tour of the dark web. Amazing. Fascinating. Um, and so then, uh, then I learned how to get onto the dark web myself. I'm not a particularly um, tech-savvy person. Like I'm, I would say I'm fairly average in terms of my computer skills. So I made sure I did a lot of research and did that really carefully. Um, but yeah, you can just go on to the dark web and, and check things out. It's perfectly and, and legal. sell someone's driver's license information. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, why exactly. Not? yeah. Or, you know, buy a US passport for $5,000 in Bitcoin. Oh my God. Wow. I mean, I think, um, I think probably a lot of us have our details on the dark web and don't even realize that I I suspected myself, although I didn't go on the lovely tour, sounds amazing. Um, but I suspected at one stage that my credit card had been sold on the dark web because I was getting transactions in the UK, uh, for like Deliveroo, like an Uber Eats kind of situation. 
And I'm like, there was no other way for the, those details to make it overseas like that. So, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't see that straight away, but I'm sure there's. Who knows? I it's a lot more widespread than people expect. Yeah, one in four Australians have already been victims of cyber um, identity theft. Like, like that's an example of it. So it goes all the way from that sort of more innocuous, you know, credit card transactions. Mm all the way up to your full identity being completely overtaken by someone. Mm. And and who knows if that's going on, like someone would have another person living their life somewhere else in the world. That's quite scary to think about. And I think this book does bring out some of those like real scary ideas that are actually unfortunately true. You know, this is a work of fiction, but yeah, there's some stuff in there. Like, and Reagan, the um, protagonist in the story, she has trust issues, but like by the end, I'm, I had trust, trust <laughs> issues, you know, like, <laughs> you know, she had good reason, you know, she stays off the web, you know, she keeps a very low profile. And I think probably a good idea. And the rest of us just sort of do it. You know, we put our data out there for free for people to come and take yeah. all the time. But I think part of part of what I tried to show in the book is, you know, obviously we do want to be careful about what data we are choosing to put out there. But even if you are like Reagan at the start of the book, trying to keep yourself as safe as possible, other agencies are still putting your data on, you know, mm-hmm. like the MetaBank hack, the Office hack. Like if you want to interact mm-hmm. with the modern world in any way, that's it. Your data is vulnerable. Yeah, so- you can't really live in fear. Um, I have always thought myself, it's my little justification to myself that if I, I'm much more at risk just walking down the street, you know, that's where I am. If you want to find my address, you're going to find me kind of thing. So anyway, I want to ask you as well, you have your own podcast uh, and it's about writing, creativity and health. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you do that with your friend, James, who's also an author. So tell us a bit about the podcast. So it's called James and Ashley Stay at Home. And when we named it, we did not realize that people would assume that James and Ashley are staying at the same home. (laughs) A lot of people think that James and I are married now. We are not. We were actually living in separate cities when we started the podcast. Um, So this is James Mackenzie Watson. He's uh, the Penguin Literary Prize uh, winner uh, for his debut novel, Denizen, which came out last year and is, I think of it as psychological thriller, but it's branded as rural noir. So you just kind of combine those two genres into like one of the best books you have ever read. That's Denizen. And uh, James and I both also live with chronic illness. So we met through the writer's group that we're in and, but then discovered that, oh, we both, you know, live with chronic illness and, and face these extra challenges. And uh, because of those two things, both the writing and the, and our health issues, we spend a lot of time at home. Mm. So when the pandemic started and everyone was being told to stay at home, we're like, oh, yeah, we're really good at this. Like, we know how to do this. Yeah, exactly. So, um, probably now I think people would be much more inclined to relate to your situation or mm-hmm. to – I feel like the pandemic really opened everyone's eyes to the various different challenges we all have in our lives uh, and how that can impact our day-to-day life. And I also think what it did was it shifted a lot of people's priorities. Mm. So, you know, that people are really pursuing what they want to be pursuing in a lot of ways and and overcoming some of these challenges, at least to the extent possible. Well, this is what we realized, like, so we've been interviewing authors and we interview health professionals as well and talk about issues around creativity and health and and a a lot of writing talk. But what I've really realized is that both creative ambition, like when you're striving to achieve something with your creativity and when you're living with health issues. And I think for the pandemic, that was all of us. Mm. 
they both force you to find creative solutions Mm -hmm. and to have a lot of resilience. And that's really the connection that we've found between, um, between the two topics that we're exploring. Yeah, absolutely. Resilience would be a huge feature Mm -hmm. of it. So do you find, and I, I know having listened to your podcast that the issue that you face is chronic fatigue. So how do you find that impacts your creative process, generally speaking? It just takes a lot of time from it. Mm. And that's, and that's the really frustrating thing is that particularly with the writing, there are days where I am, I am well enough to do a lot of other things. Like I can answer my emails or I can wash the dishes. But if I sit down to try to be creative, I, the, the cognitive fatigue is just still too strong to really allow me to engage with my creative self. And so that I find is, you know, it's, it's, really impacts what I'm able to do. And so I have to be very flexible. You know, I can't set up a schedule and say, Mm. I'm going to write on these days at these times because I have just no idea how I'll be feeling then. Mm. So I've had to really learn to that resilience around doing what I'm able to do when I'm able to do it and then being okay when I have to spend a whole week in bed Mm -hmm. and also allowing myself to understand that a lot of that lost time isn't fully lost in the sense that it's there's no value in it. Mm. Because one of the reasons I ended up writing dark mode is that I was when I when I was really, really sick, the first couple of years of my illness, I could barely get out of bed most days. I spent mm. a lot of time mm. just in bed. And I wasn't even well enough to watch TV a lot of the time because it was it was too hard to put the visuals and the audio together, like wow. cognitively. Mm. So I listened to a lot of podcasts and the podcasts that really helped, that really took me mentally out of the situation I was in was true crime podcasts. Yeah. So I listened to hundreds and hundreds of true crime podcasts. And then I thought, I've always been a crime fiction fan. Maybe I can give this a try. Yeah. Wow. I mean, why do we as women listen to these true crime podcasts? Like, <laughs> honestly, I love them too. And I've spent a lot of time uh, listening to them myself. And why do we find them like so calming? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's something really bizarre about it, isn't there? My theory and this is coming from the perspective of having been ill, particularly with an illness that's very under-researched, that's very under understood. Mm-hmm. I think when we're listening to a true crime podcast, these are generally cases where there has been a big public response. Like you've got investigators, you've got the media, mm-hmm. you've got the you've got the legal system. Like one person can be murdered and hundreds of people can end up being involved mm-hmm. in the aftermath of that, mm-hmm. trying to redress what's happened successfully or unsuccessfully depending. And so I think part for me, it was partly like, you know, this horrible thing happened to this person and nothing can change that. Nothing can take Mm. that away. But there are so many people who are working to do something, Mm. you know, try and prevent it from happening to someone else to try and get some kind of justice for the family, you know, as, as intangible as that is. Mm. Um, So I think for me, it was partly that. Yeah, right. just the, the the knowledge that there's this whole community around it. And yeah. it's actually far more good people than there are bad people in the world. Yeah, because in, in contrast, you know, when I was diagnosed, I was effectively told by the doctors, like, okay, we'll just go home now because there's yeah. nothing we can do for you. So yeah. you just, just like, you just wait and see. You Maybe are very alone with it, aren't you? Yeah. I find it interesting what you said as well. I mean, I find your situation very relatable. I don't suffer myself from a chronic illness, yeah. um, but my husband... Um, is paraplegic and only became paraplegic three years ago. So my pandemic time was really interesting as well because I I had to stay at home too for different reasons um, as a carer basically and 
or everyone else had to stay at home too. I kind of liked it. I'm like, oh, I'm not missing anything, which is <laughs> yes. horrible. Obviously, don't wish that on the entire world. Yeah. But um, I do really agree with what you said earlier that there's sometimes you can function. You know, I was very busy during that time, but yeah. this extra energy you need to be creative is a whole other thing. And I think it's emotional energy as well as intellectual, uh, you know, cognitive energy. Yeah. And that really is probably that next level struggle that creative people have. It may be that I've got time, actually. I've got plenty of time today, but I just cannot imagine something now. You know, I'm just dealing with, with the basics. Well, and that's part of that resilience is the, is managing your emotional state, like your psychological mm-hmm. state. And both with living with illness or being a carer and, and with creative ambition, there's so much self-management around, okay, like I'm feeling really distraught and feeling really pessimistic but I just have to figure out how to keep moving forward. Mm. And yeah, that's a huge challenge. And giving yourself permission to, like you say, if you've spent the week in bed, or in my case, I've spent a year only thinking about writing and not uh, doing any of it in yeah. the early days, I think, yeah, there's a there's an extra like layer of guilt as well, like as if you should be, because you've, in my case, because I had time yeah. that I should have managed my time better. When as we know, like it's really the creative aspect that's the challenge. But I do think, you know, what you're bringing to light is that so many people do face these challenges and it's actually not rare at all. You know, I know uh, writer friends who suffer chronic migraines. There's, there's a lot of that, unfortunately, or just particular life challenges, whatever they may be, children with severe disabilities yeah. or just work commitments, you know, all sorts of things that people face that drain their energy to be creative. So I love that you're bringing light to that because I think it is even for me who doesn't suffer chronic illness very relatable oh that's great to hear I'm so glad (laughs) so we were here on Friday evening and we saw your um your talk the story for Soraya which was amazing so I wanted to just ask how's your neck (laughs) (laughs) so I told a a true story called spooning which is about how I got in a car accident uh and suffered a neck injury that just plagued me for years and uh, saw all these different specialists and eventually saw a Japanese acupuncturist who used a, a, a spoon to um, treat my neck. And it was ridiculously effective. Like it was, it was so effective. But actually, the boring ending of that story that I don't actually tell because it's not funny is that like that treatment was great, but it was not, it didn't last. Like I had to keep yeah. going back for it. So what eventually actually fixed my neck was that I saw a physio and I did Pilates with her once a week for a year and that she was able to strengthen, you know, all the tiny little muscles that were sort of like weak and causing the issues. And yeah, then, then my neck was fantastic. So you saw an actual health professional (laughs) and they were able to solve your problem. It's amazing. No temporary blindness. No. Yeah. (laughs) She didn't didn't even set me on fire. Yeah. It was a great story. That it was a great night, actually. I was yeah. literally crying with oh, laughter. Yeah. It was so, it was so, so great. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, Zoe Norton Lodge who was running. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't, I didn't even know this existed, but I'm yeah. going to be looking out for it now Absolutely. if she keeps doing it. Well, she has a fantastic book actually, which is a collection of those stories uh, that of she her own. of her own. Yeah, mm-hmm. that she delivers, mm. and it's called Almost Sincerely. And then actually there's also a book that's called, it's called Story Club. And it's, it's a collection of some of the best performers that they had 
Um, so it's a collection of their stories because they, they did that her, it was her and comedian Ben Jenkins and they did that for 13 years every month in yeah. Sydney. Amazing. So she Huge has commitment. so many stories. I can imagine because even there were six speakers just the other night and every single one of them was amazing. Yeah. But she did mention that it was briefly a TV series and that yes. it, it didn't continue. But yeah. I, I feel like the reason might be that there's something special about telling a story in person. Yes. And I couldn't imagine having sat there. Every one of those stories was fascinating in its own right, but I feel like that connection of being told that story in the same room is very different to watching yeah. it on a TV screen. Yeah. Um, so I suspect and I wonder how, how it translates into reading. Mm-hmm. I feel like that there's a bit more it's more personal with reading than it might be on TV as well, even though you're seeing their face. And, and some of those stories might need to be a little bit sanitised as well for, for TV. <laughs> some of them were a bit, a bit extreme, I think. Yeah, people setting themselves up to get arrested, I think, yeah, in some cases. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of crime going on. <laughs> all right, well, it's lovely to meet you. Um, all the best for your talk today and um, thanks for talking to us about your books. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for supporting the Australian literary community. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right.